Welcome to Rock Solid Ministries Frontline Servants Program, where we visit with men and women on the front lines of kingdom service. For more information about our free revival ministry, or to explore more of our audio and video recordings, or take a look at the free printed materials that we offer, visit our website at rocksolidministries.org. Again, rocksolidministries.org. My guest today is preacher Brian Doyle of First Christian Church, Murfreesboro, Arkansas. Brian, we met way back about four days ago. That's correct. <laughs> yeah, though we have spoken on the phone uh, while getting ready for the revival services that are now in progress in Murfreesboro. So basically what I'm saying is I'm going to be learning about your life and ministry along with our listeners today. Hmm. So, Brother Brian, tell us your story. Okay. Well, my family came to Christ when I was about four years old. Uh, your dad, whole family, parents? and Parents and siblings and everybody. We, we started going to church. A uh, brand new Christian church plant out in Southern California, our uh, little town of 199,000 people, uh, Marina <laughs> Valley, California. Yeah. Uh, guy by the name of Bob Mink um, planted our church. My dad was really just enthusiastic. Uh, I actually ended up uh, playing bass guitar for the church band there. And uh, we, I remember uh, every single Sunday, my dad and I would, as he would go to band practice before it started, we, we were in an elementary school, and uh, on our way to church, we would listen to Sunrise with the Beatles, <laughs> and I'd uh, listen to them practice worship music for another hour after that, and then we'd start church. Um, I fell in love with God right away. Uh, I mean, I remember in first grade, my uh, first grade teacher having to tell me to stop talking about Jesus. Because we had to start class. And she goes, I go to your church, Brian. I know you love Jesus, but let's start <laughs> Let's start class, okay? Well, can I back you up a little bit now? Your church, your family didn't attend church at all? Not until, not until that church plant. You know, we've known for years that the two best ways to evangelize in this country are new church plants mm-hmm. and campus ministries and college and uh, it's interesting. I don't remember any that I've talked to on this program that they were one through New Church Plant. Yeah. Now, maybe we have, but we've done so many. But I, I want to back that up. How did I want to know how your parents, how did they hear about this church and what made them decide to go? Do you know? I think they were just invited by some neighbors. My dad was a police officer. Mm-hmm. And I think somebody else who uh, was in his department, they, they lived far away from where they lived. Um, and even though he's retired, I still don't say who he is or what he does because he put a lot of people away. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, they started going. I think they were invited by some friends, and they got real hooked into it. My dad met some guy he knew in high school who was this hippie stoner guy, and now all of a sudden, you know, greeted him at the door. And, and you know, wow. it was just really just, I guess, providential is all you can call it. Right. Right. So I'm I, sorry, I want to back you up on yeah. that because I think that's interesting and, yeah. and something to note for our listeners that that uh, if you're in a new church work, mm-hmm. uh, something new and fresh like that, it's not that the old churches aren't doing great work, right. but that is always a great way to, to reach out to an unchurched family Absolutely. like yours. So go on now, you're first grade and the teacher's telling you to shut up okay. <laughs> in the nicest way. And, and you know, I, I kept growing in church and... and uh, now, I'll admit I fooled around in the back of class at times, especially as I got towards middle school and, and, and things like that. But the youth minister at the church, he would often call me uh, Preacher Brian. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I knew the Bible backwards and forwards. I, you know, But once I started getting into high school, the only way I can explain it is I, I, I gave my life to Christ when I was 10 years old. I knew who he was. I loved him. And I've talked to my dad about this in recent years. He goes, I knew you loved Jesus from the moment we started going to church. But after, you know, there's a lot of things that happened in my life. I still don't talk about it very publicly. Sure. Um, I started chasing popularity. I started chasing girls. And even though by the time I was in high school, I was so trusted at my church. I was teaching. We had three services. And I found a way to teach all three services and not have to go into big church. Um, uh, I had a key to the church. I had um, I had a uh, the alarm codes. I was actually part of the uh, volunteer staff setting up in the mornings because I was there every Sunday. 
but I had everything surrounding Jesus Christ without actually wanting a, a relationship. I, I was a prodigal, even though I was attending church every single Sunday. Uh, I understand that personally very, very well. When I was about 16 was kind of a turning point, even though it didn't change much at the time. Uh, I'm now 40 years old. I still remember it. I don't remember the name of the girl. Uh, I didn't think much of her. I thought she had a bad reputation that she earned. And she walked up to me. She said, what happened to you? She walked up to me in front of my friends and said this. Wow. She said, you used to be the kid in church I wanted to be like. You were singing every song as loud as you could. You knew every verse of the Bible. You gave me hope that I could be better. Now you're just a, and I don't know if this is going to offend the sensibilities of your listeners, but she goes, now you're just a jerk like everybody else. And being a 16-year-old boy, I shrugged it off. Right. But here I am at 40. I still remember that conversation clearly. I don't remember her name, but I remember where I was. I remember everything. And I know it was God trying to get my attention in hindsight, but as a 16-year-old boy, I was arrogant. At, at this time in your life, you probably would like to go back and thank her. I would. I'd like to find her and thank her. Yes. Because I've used that over and over again um, throughout my ministry. Um, And I'll get into that in a little bit. Okay. But I I chased girls. You know, and I always called myself a gentleman because I would never make the first move. And since really, I mean, I knew the Bible, but since really getting in-depth into it, I realized what an arrogant pig I was. Mm Mm-hmm. And, I'm just nodding my head because not because I know you, but because I know me. Yeah, and, and yeah, and while I still had my Christian values and I was a good kid, and I'm doing air quotes because people can't see on right. The, on the radio. <laughs> but uh, while I was that kid, and I was respected by adults, and and I could hang out with any group in school, you know, you name it. In Southern California, there's a lot of them. Uh, I always knew something was wrong. I could be in the middle of a giant group of people. And still feel utterly and absolutely alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've talked to a lot of students since, you know, and I'm, I'm going to keep kind of, I guess, backtracking, but that's right. I, I've come to realize that that's almost a calling. Yeah. You no, know, it's set apart because I could try and in, in, insert myself into any group, and I prided myself on that, but I would never feel a part of it. Mm-hmm. And so. I didn't realize it then, but I, I kind of knew it was part of my calling later on in life once I looked back at that. Well, I kept ignoring God's calling. Um, after I graduated, a friend of mine died in a motorcycle accident. I wouldn't go to his funeral because I didn't want to face the fact that death was still present. You know, when you're young, you think you're immortal. Yeah. And I wanted to imagine I was. And so I didn't even go to the funeral. Um, this was not something I wanted to deal with. And so I immersed myself in school and work. Um, I was supposed to go to military university in Vermont. I was an ROTC kid in high school. Uh, for those who don't know, it's uh, the Junior Reserve Officer Training Corps. Uh, many high schools throughout America have them. Um, a lot of it's a pretty good recruiting tool for the American military. And I was supposed to go to a school called Norwich University in Vermont. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was my plan. I was going to be an officer in the military. And after, if, if I retired, I was going to be a police officer like my dad. That was my plan since I was three. Um, I was going to get married. I was going to have kids. That's what I wanted to do. I had a great role model in my dad. Um, But the girls always got to me. And then I had a big disappointment in high school. That was the only school I applied to because they were interested in me. And they decided my dad made too much money. And so I lost all my scholarships. I lost all my funding. And I ended up having to go to junior college. So I found myself an 18 or 17 year old kid out of high school, had to get a full time job to pay for school, um, which was probably one of the best things for me. I was still studying to be a police officer. I, I joined uh, at Riverside Community College in Southern California, um, joined the Administration of Justice program where it was pretty amazing. I met a lot of my grandfather who was a police chief, a lot of his old colleagues, and uh, during that course they would set up crime scenes for us to investigate. And apparently I had too much attention to detail because they said, oh, I didn't think about that. <laughs> you know, we were supposed to investigate a, a, a what was called a suicide. And so they said, right. a dummy and all that other stuff. And I said, there's no powder burns on the hand and there's no powder burns next to the, the, the 
adjutant or the adjunct professor said, that was an oversight on my part. You're looking too much into this. Just look at what's there. <laughs> <laughs> but then I met a girl. And part of my arrogance wants to say that she was always at fault for everything that happened, but I wasn't right. And me not being right, um, we were just wrong for each other. Mm-hmm. But this was a girl that was not just, it was just like college. She was interested in me. Right. She pursued me. And in high school, I managed to avoid sexual intercourse. I wasn't ready for it. And I felt that, you know, while I'm fooling around with girls, I'll draw a line somewhere. Well, I thought this girl and I were to get married. And eventually she convinced me she didn't want to be married to a cop. And I gave up everything to her. And this is something I've carried with me. You know, even in my marriage, I've, I've had guilt over it. Right. You know, my wife saved things for me that I couldn't save for her. Or I right. didn't save for her. I shouldn't say couldn't, but didn't. Right. Uh, towards the end of the relationship, uh, we, we miscarried once. And then our um, second pre- pregnancy, I think was probably considered a stillbirth. Because it was around 22, 23 weeks. And uh, even before that, everything started falling apart. You know, I, I had still had a couple courses left in junior college. I didn't know what I wanted to do anymore because I dropped out of the administration justice program and was just pursuing my um, general education so that if I decided to go back to school once my general ed was done, um, I could just focus on a major. Well, she was pregnant. She was scared. And her mom and stepdad were leaving Oklahoma or leaving to Oklahoma from Southern California and wanted me to go with them. At the time, I had a good job with good benefits, and I just didn't see it. Um, I was even told by some people who I think were um, hopefully well-intended but had really just poor motivations that, well, you just go on welfare when you're out there. That wasn't me. Yeah. And so she left. And a month and a half after she left, I got the call that she miscarried. Her, the baby was stillborn and her body rejected him. He stopped growing after eight weeks. Mm. And I was still going to work every day after all that. I was going to work every single day. And I would drive through this canyon and I would look down to this backyard of somebody as I'm going down this cliff. It's about 300 foot drop. And I wasn't sleeping and I wasn't eating. And after about a week, I had to force myself an hour a night and I ate, I think it was a waffle, just to keep going because I was still going to work. I was lost. There's a song that came out that year uh, called Whiskey Lullaby. And as I'm driving home one day, and I'm kind of resolved that this is the day I'm going to just kill myself, a song comes on the radio. And the song's about a guy who drank himself to death over a woman who left him. And then she drank herself to death uh, after he died. And I just thought to myself, this is where I'm going. This is it. This is the sign. I'm done. I'm going to put everybody else out of their misery and get rid of myself. And then there was traffic in the canyon. And another song comes on the radio right after. A guy named Jimmy Wayne wrote a song called I Love You This Much. And even though I had a great relationship with my dad and I emulated my life, you know, I want to be a police officer. I want to be a family man. I want to be all those things. The song was about a guy who was chasing after a relationship. And the relationship happened to be with his dad. And his dad just walked out on him. And he would say this tagline, I love you this much. And I'm waiting on you to make up your mind. Do you love me too? And in the course of the song, you hear, as he grew up, he became bitter. Because he was chasing after this love that was not reciprocated. And his father passed away without them having to, uh, any reconciliation whatsoever. And as he's sitting there bitter in the church, he looks past the casket to the man on the cross and he hears the words he said to his dad I love you this much and I'm waiting on you to make up your mind wow do you love me too and in that moment I knew God was speaking to me yeah and it was almost like I heard him say son I never wanted any of this for you but your brokenness I'll give you beauty for ashes and uh, that verse in Joel that says I will restore what the locusts have eaten away that came up every like week for a couple years after this incident. And I almost crashed the car into the cliff anyway. 
<laughs> just because the Holy Spirit just overwhelmed me and I was weeping. I said, Lord, I surrender. I'm done. I've tried doing this on my own and this is what I got. I'm nothing. I'm, I'm dead. If you don't intervene, I'm dead. And I and I just I could just tell you I felt the presence of God in the car. It was so overwhelming. Like I said, I almost swerved into the cliff anyway. But I knew at that moment I was okay. <laughs> yeah. Because I was already his. I was already baptized and sealed and saved. I was just a prodigal son who tried cashing in on my inheritance early. And so that moment on, I knew that my whole life had to be for Jesus. And so I resolved one thing first and foremost. I was going to stop chasing after girls. Smart. Good decision. Yeah. Good decision. Well, I didn't know who I was. And as I said earlier, I had everything growing up surrounding Christ. I knew who he was when I was little. And I don't like using the word accepted him as my Lord and Savior. I was called when I was young. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the preachers at the church, you know, called me youth minister and, and gave me titles and gave me keys to the church. They saw something in me then. Right. But I had to go to the far off country and look at what the pigs were eating. <laughs> right. And so I, I vowed to God I was going to figure out who I was in him before I pursued anything else. And so over the course of that time, just a lot of things just kept on happening. I was still going to work in you know, the same place I was. I, I, you know, if I make a commitment to something, I'm going to stick to it. And I loved it. I was working with autistic children. Um, but then I felt the call to ministry. And I went to a Bible college. Um... It's for the Calvary Chapel School. And, and, you know, for me, I didn't know how to get started, so I thought this was a good start. The school and I weren't a good fit. Um, I appreciate a lot of the things they do. I just didn't agree with them on a lot of stances. Right. And then I couldn't afford it because it's a very private school, no government funding, no scholarships available outside because they want to keep the school the way they want it. They didn't want to accept outside help because the moment you accept government help, absolutely, you have to start doing things their way. And I respected that position. Yeah. Something to, that is something to be respected. Mm-hmm. It certainly is. And uh, it's amazing when you make a vow to God that you're not going to pursue women until you figure out who you are with him first. How the enemy likes to throw it at you. Yeah. He threw it at me. I mean, over those years. and um, I mean, it, it just, every single time I would get distracted, God gave me something new. So, like I said, I went to a semester at this Calvary Chapel Bible College, and uh, <laughs> what was funny was I told God what I wouldn't do to work my way through school. I said, Lord, I'll do anything you want. But my very first job was working at a grocery store, and you work at a grocery store, there's some just nasty things that you have to deal with that you don't want to deal with. Mm-hmm. And so I said, Lord, I'll do anything but that. I turned in 52 applications. The only place that would hire me was a grocery store. And I got hired in the produce department, cleaning up all the stuff in the morning that was squished and moldy and all that other stuff. Been there and done that myself, yeah. But what was amazing about this is one of the distractions God gave me from these girls I was trying to, because, you know, Bible college, they call it bridal college. You meet girls that you're interested in that share your values, you want to snatch it up. Well, there's a guy there, the very first day I met him, he said, I used to be a Christian. Then my parents were involved with the church split. And I saw what it did to them. And I said, I want nothing else to do with it. And so he would challenge me every single day. Eventually I got moved to a different department. I ended up working uh, for the night crew stocking. And it was a 24-hour store, so I was almost a security guard because I had to restock the wall of values with. And so anybody who tried to run out the front door, I was chasing them down. But he would still come in in the mornings as I was leaving to go to school. Because I would go to school. Uh, till about 8 o'clock at night. I would go into the grocery store at 10 o'clock. I would leave most of the time at 6 o'clock, but most of the time, well, I would just say in theory at 6 o'clock. But the majority of the time I'd leave at 7 or 8. I'd take a shower <laughs> at the school sanctuary because they had a bathroom there. And I would go to chapel and go to my classes for the day. And he would challenge me every day. And I remember when I left the school and when I left the... Uh, the store at the same time because I was going to go to a different school and I had a different job lined up. He said, I want to let you know something. My fiance and I are no longer living together. She's living down the hall and our daughter 
is if she knows that mommy and daddy are still together, but we're in premarital counseling. I'm going to church six days a week. And we're both pursuing God together to try and correct the wrong we've made. And you showed me that a man can be a Christian in any environment he's given. And I gave you hell. And you gave me love back. You know, we talked about last night, if if you stick with God mm-hmm. and and the values that he's given you, uh, like Daniel did and, and uh, others, that you can eventually change the world in which you live. That's right. Those around you. And that's a great example. I appreciate hearing that example. Yeah. Well, I knew then that, you know, I didn't know why I was going to Bible college, but I knew that that, that was my calling, was to be a disciple maker. <clears throat> I didn't know I was supposed to be a preacher. Um, I, I got hooked up with my home church. Um, the youth minister there uh, needed volunteers. And so I started working with the youth. Um, and I felt the call to that because that's where I went wrong. And so, you know, I, that night I actually met my wife without even realizing it. Hey, when I asked where I'd been, I told them my whole life story. I, I'm a pretty open book, you know. Uh, I'm not afraid to admit my mistakes. And I think that's the problem of a lot of Christians is we want to put on the makeup. And we want to put on the nice clothes. And we want to act yeah. like nothing's wrong. When the fact is, all of us are rescues. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned, you know, talking about your resurrection story. Well, I tell it to everybody I can. Yeah. Because I'm a rescue. I was dead and I'm alive. I was lost and I was found. You know, the Father ran to me with open arms and put a robe on me and a ring on my finger and shoes on my feet. Yeah. How could I not tell people where I've been? That's right. <laughs> That's right. i got to tell somebody. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I felt the call to go into ministry. I knew... That was what I was supposed to do. I was supposed to be serving the Lord with everything I was in full-time ministry. I just knew. I didn't know how it was going to happen. Um, at that time, I went in to live with my dad's best friend, who was an atheist, is an atheist, claims to be an atheist. I think he's an agnostic who's fighting with himself. Right. But uh, he didn't really approve of what I was doing, but he allowed me to live at his house rent-free. Um and at that time, the youth minister got me connected with Pacific Christian College, Hope International University. Right. And suggested I go there. Well, God knows what he's doing. Because even in my mistakes, my general education was all done. And so when I got to college, I was doing the online schooling. Um, he actually also connected me with a guy who was starting a paintball company. And they needed a, a customer service representative. And he said, I'm good with people. I'd be perfect for the job. And so in that time... Um, I was working for a paintball company, so I was traveling a lot, so I couldn't go into a physical classroom. Hope just opened up all those online courses that a lot of people are doing now, and uh, I did really well. I was actually, uh, I think I graduated magna cum laude um, from the school, and uh, at the time I was also interning at the church, and... Uh, Going back to what I said about not pursuing women until I figured out who I was with God first. Well, while I'm in school and I'm in this job and I'm in a really good place with God, April 29th, 2007, I woke up with all I could describe as complete peace. And I said, okay, Lord, I'm content. If I'm single for the rest of my life and it's just you and me, I'm okay with that. Whatever you want for my life, I'm just not going to pursue anything. I'm just going to take what you give me. That's a that's a good way to approach life I mean, as a Christian, yes. It was just peace. It didn't make it's sense. The way. Yeah. It, it's what the Bible calls peace beyond understanding. And I knew that's what it was. And I couldn't tell you why I knew what it was. I just knew it was peace. Right. And I had peace for the first time in my life. And I realized that this is what I was looking for in everything. I tried following women. Couldn't find peace there. <laughs> I mean, I tried following a career. Couldn't find peace there. I tried all these other things. But when I finally was fully pursuing God with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and I was loving my neighbor as myself, I was serving in church. I was there every time the doors were opened. I found peace. Well, God had plans for me that same day. I had joined a Bible study, and it was actually my dad's Bible study. Um, <laughs> It was an over 50 Bible study. I thought it was a safe place. 
<laughs> because yeah. chances are there's not single women looking for a guy my age in that kind of group. Right. Now, how old were you at this time? Uh, you're making me do math. I think it was 25. Okay. We'll take that. Yeah. Somewhere in that range. All Somewhere right. in that range. 25, 26. Um, <laughs> well, that same day that I told God I was completely content, my wife's mother was in that Bible study group. And so I'd gotten to know her really well. Her name's Denise. And so if you're listening, hello, Denise. <laughs> um, well, that day, her and uh, my father-in-law, Mike, were going to Talladega. Uh, and we were supposed to, with our Bible study, go to a play because we were going through the Book of Ruth. So there was two tickets available, and my wife took them. Well, we hit it off. We talked all the way out there. We were in the back of one of the elders. The One of the elders had run the Bible study. His name was Dave Hawn. He's a good guy. And so he offered to drive us out there, and so we wouldn't have to take separate cars. We talked all the way out there. And uh, she was also a youth worker. I worked with the middle schoolers. She worked with the high schoolers. So we knew each other. And I liked her a lot. She was a, I mean, still is, wonderful, wonderful girl. And uh, at intermission, there wasn't a line for the women's restroom, but there was for the men's. And I don't know any venue I've ever been to in the history of ever that that's ever happened. (laughs) And she waited with me and we talked the whole time. I'm waiting to go to the restroom. We talked all the way until intermission was over. We talked all the way home. And uh, I was so at peace with God and content, I didn't realize what he was throwing at me. Because she said, I'm hungry. And I said, well, there's a Del Taco drive-thru that's open 24 hours. Good old Del Taco. At 11 o'clock at night, this is when we got back, I said, you can go down to Del Taco if you're hungry. I really genuinely said this. I was that stupid. And then she said, well, I'd sort of like to sit down and eat. So well, you could eat it in your car. <laughs> and then I saw her slump and I almost felt like the Holy Spirit flicked me in the back of the head and said genius this is what you've been waiting for Yeah, this is what I have for you now that you've given everything over to me and so I finally got it we ended up going to Denny's um, so we can sit down and talk and eat and I went to work the next day and I told my co-workers I went out with my wife and so all those things that I had been pursuing on my own that crashed and burned around me um, God restored that. Joel, I'm going back to that verse in Joel. I think it's Joel two two. Mm-hmm. I will restore what the locusts have eaten away. I lost two children <clears throat> with my ex fiance. I now have four boys. Four wonderful boys. Yeah. Uh, take a break here, if you don't mind, sure. and tell us about their ages and and the boys. Okay. Our oldest is Lysander. He's uh, going to be twelve in August. Um, second oldest is Phineas. That's the name you liked. Yeah, and, um, and he's the tallest. He's the tallest. He's yeah. nine. He'll be ten in October. Yeah. Um, our third just turned eight today, and uh, his name is Tobias. And our youngest uh, turned six while I was at church camp. He was a church camp baby, uh, so I hardly ever get to spend his birthday with him. But uh, he turned six a couple of weeks ago. So, yeah, I mean, it's just it's amazing. And I and here's also the funny thing is I grew up in a city of estrogen. I had only sisters, and all, and my my nearest male cousin was twenty years older than me. So, I was always told by my grandfather, my dad's, and my uncle uh, on my dad's side, if you don't produce boys, the the line ends with you. Well, <laughs> I, with four boys, I don't have to worry about that anymore. Uh, but yeah, they're good kids. Uh, our oldest, uh, he actually inspires me because. He gets up every day at 5.30 to read his Bible. And I'm not sure if you've seen his Bible, but it's a mess. I have seen it. And some of it is being young and owning a Bible, but most of it is is use. Yeah. You know, he uses it. He knows it. Um, I mean, he's gone through the entire Bible. Um, I don't know how long it's taken him, but he's gone from Genesis. He's all the way. I think he's in Mark now. And he is, you said 12? He'll be 12 in August. Be 12 in August. Okay. He's already preached a sermon. Him and his older, his younger, next younger brother, they're part of our preacher boy club here at the church. Um, and we tell them all the time, you know, um, this is our ministry. You know, not your mother's and mine, but all of us together. So you're partners with us in the ministry. You're not just kids to fill a church program with. Um, and the last few nights of the revival, I'm not sure if you watched them get up and take kids with them. Right. You know, so that's how evangelism works. 
Jesus said, follow me, and people did. So you're walking up and saying, hey, follow me. And they're inviting these kids to come to the, the kids. Uh, yeah, I think last night was the biggest crowd of kids we had that went back yeah. for the for what we call the children's revival. Yeah, you know, and, and so... And that's what they're teaching them is to, to follow Jesus. They're teaching the commands Jesus gave. You know, there's 12 yeah. of them, and I can't list them off the top of my head. But um, <laughs> they are they are following them, and, or they're, they're leading them in that. They're helping out. Um, they're teaching the younger kids the moves to the songs. And, yeah. Um, I mean, they're having a good time serving God. And Xander, he's with me every single time I'm in church by myself. So I'm usually here Saturday mornings and Sunday mornings. He's got responsibilities in the church. Yeah, he greeted us Sunday morning when Beth and I came. We're here early. He was yeah. standing at the door. He'll go and he'll set up all the tech stuff. Um, yeah. You know, he's he's got a lot of good stuff, and and uh, some of that is not lost on me of what I grew up in. And so right. I'm trying to uh, have those spiritual conversations with him about growing up with everything surrounding Jesus without really knowing him. But uh, right, I watch your conversations with your boys, and I. I really admire them where you take the time and explain to them what they're doing and whether it's right or wrong yeah. because there are, there are boys and you've, you you have to sit down. I've watched that too, but I, I really admire the way you, you do that as, as a dad. That That's really good, really good. Well, I mean, it, I can only credit the Holy Spirit for it. Sure. Because, you know, it's, it's not me. You know, Brian Doyle, apart from Jesus, is arrogant. I enjoy being the smartest kid in the room and taking everybody down intellectually. That's mm-hmm. who I really am. And so I could tell you that uh, it's got to be the fruit of the Spirit because it's nothing I produce in me. Right. But I've always tried to have those conversations with them. I remember uh, Xander was eight when he was baptized. And we're talking about Corey Ten Boone mm-hmm. and how she gave her life to Christ when she was five. And we talked about her whole life and everything she served. And we just got done listening to... Um, is a couldn't call it a podcast because they didn't have that back then. Right. But it was a recording of one of her uh, messages that she gave on on prayer. And he looked at me, and I knew he was ready for it. He says, "Dad, if she gave her life to Christ when I was five, why can't I give my life to Christ when I'm seven? Right. And I couldn't tell you what it was. I just knew he understood what it meant. Right, and I tried talking about it. I'm not a preacher who tries to talk someone out of the baptistry. No, uh, no, I, I say that facetiously. Right, but I want people to know they're getting in it. I said, you know what this means? I said, you're giving your whole life to Jesus, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I said, you're giving everything over to Him. You're surrendering your whole life. You're letting Him dictate the terms. Right. He said, I know what that means, Dad. It's what I want to do. It's like my whole life is for Jesus. I want that, and. Um, I had the privilege of baptizing him, and uh, his older brother came three years ago. Um, just, you know, and I, I have spiritual conversations with him all the time. And then uh, when Tobias came about, he was having dreams for a year that Jesus was talking to him underwater. Hmm. For a year. And then for that whole year, all his animals, he calls them his stuffies, he would say, Dad, guess what happened last week? So and so got baptized. Dad, guess what happened last week? And all his stuffed animals would get baptized until he was the only one who didn't. And then one day he comes up to me and he says, Dad, I'm ready to give my whole life to Jesus. And so with all of them, it was just like that. Phineas, you know, he didn't need much coaxing. You know, it was, uh, I think the biggest thing, fear he had was drowning. <laughs> and then he went yeah. to, uh, we had a VBS that one, they went to, there's a water slide up here uh, at the diamond mine here in Murfreesboro. Right. And he got dumped underwater, and he said, I don't know what I've been afraid of, Dad. I'm not afraid of dying. I'm not afraid of Jesus. I was afraid of drowning. He says, it's the stupidest thing to be afraid of. I want to give my life to Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) And so the youngest one, he's just not there. Right. But we still have those conversations. It's really great to watch my wife work with him. Because on Sundays, uh, you you saw this last Sunday, I'm always up on stage, and... um, the elders uh, and I came up with this idea that we need to be taking communion together as a family. So we, um, you know, I'll read a verse and we'll all take the bread and the cup together and we wait for one another. Right. And uh, I watch my wife every single Sunday explain it to him. Because every single Sunday he's curious about it. And she's leading the, the children's program this week. This week, yes. And I have to say, in my southern way, well, bless her heart. <laughs> because so often it's the preacher's wife that does that and they miss out on the spiritual 
blessing of being with the, with the adults, yeah. and and but she is very much appreciated for doing that. Well, I'll tell you what. As far as a partner in ministry, God couldn't have given me somebody better. Yeah. When we left California, I was um, the youth minister at my home church. Uh, I was called to ministry um, in 2011. Actually, I can need to back up a little bit on that one. We were in a house during the Fre- uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac scandals when they were giving houses and loans to everybody. Right. And uh, about a month before we got married, the company I belonged to, the paintball company, when I started going to school, uh, collapsed because of the 2008 um, financial crisis. Right. Uh, we had a board meeting and all the investors said, well, thank you for all your hard work, but we want to pull out while we still get some money out of this. And so yeah. all of us were dismissed and she still wanted to marry me anyway. And so I was still living with my friend and didn't have, uh, I had enough money to let aside to be able to pay my rent with, I was living actually, at, let me back up a little bit, I was living with that youth minister at the church. And uh, the day we got married, I moved in. I worked several odd jobs, um, but I was overqualified for most things and underqualified for others. Um, still going to school, finishing up work. Uh, I did, I worked as a travel agent for a while. Um, I worked as a, a contractor, uh, putting up TVs in hospitals in Los Angeles. I was driving like 45 miles a day. Uh, for the first six months of our marriage, I was leaving at 5 a.m. and uh, not coming back sometimes till 8 o'clock at night. And so my wife, uh, we lost a car in that process. I got into a car wreck. Um, and she said, you just got to quit this job. Our marriage is not going to be able to handle it. Smart lady. Yeah, very much so. And then uh, she ended up getting pregnant in December of that year, uh, 2009. And that was our oldest, Lysander. And I still didn't have a full-time job. I was still working odd jobs. Um, Actually, uh, she thought I'd given up looking for work. But she was okay with it because I was pursuing school. And so I was doing that for two years. Um, then in 2010, Xander came around. Uh, it was literally the last paper I had to write on my last class was the day she went into labor. It was due that night. <laughs> and uh, I kept telling her, I said, sweetheart, uh, you know, I'll finish the paper after you have the baby. She actually made me call her brother. She was preeclimptic, so Xander was coming early. She made me call her brother to bring the laptop to the delivery room so I would finish the paper. She said, I'm not having this baby till you finish college. <laughs> <laughs> and so she stayed true to her word. She was keeping the, the calm down. And then she made me finish my paper and made sure I submitted it before she went to labor fully. <laughs> I mean, water broke, everything, all that stuff. And, and so finally, uh, you know, I finished the paper. And then uh, we had a kid the next day. And uh, I, I didn't know what God's plan was for me. It was a depressing time in my life, but I knew God had a plan. Um, family didn't understand, and some nasty things were said. Um, I stopped telling my wife I was looking for work, and I was taking my son in his little buggy to go fill out applications. I was embarrassed, but I kept pursuing it. And then I told her one day, I just was praying about it. I had taken her to work. She was a teacher. Uh, I was full-time taking care of our kid at this time. I said, sweetheart, you know what the problem is? Is this house. Because I'm overqualified to push a room. I can't flip burgers at a fast food. I can't work at a grocery store. You know how much I hate those. I said, I just had this feeling that if we let go of this house, and everyone told us it was stupid to do it because you don't let go of equity. Right. So if we let go of this house, watch, a ministry position is going to open up. And so finally... She relented on that. We short-sold the house. We only had to pay $5,000 in insurance. Um, and we're forgiven a $350,000 debt. God is good. We lived with her brother for about a month and a half, and I get a call from the, the senior minister I grew up under. He said, our, our youth minister stepped down, and would you like to be 
youth director, you're well qualified, you know these kids, you've been involved with this ministry for years now, five years. He said, would you like to do it? I said, no, I'm just kidding, no. (laughs) (laughs) No, I jumped at it, it was what I wanted. You know, and and me, I was still very mature. You know, um, I wanted to be in the comfort zone and I grew up in that church and I knew the kids, I knew the youth group, I knew how to make it work. And I had a lot of problems. But, you know, God was there every step of the way. Um, and then I started running into, I knew I was on the right track because I started running into some kind of, some pretty crazy things. I had one lady who I'd asked her and her husband to be youth leaders, accused me outright of saying people with tattoos won't get into heaven. Now let me tell you this. I asked them, knowing full well that they had sleeves up and down their arms of tattoos, and so she made it a personal campaign to see me removed. Even though I never said that. I did. I always did in youth what was called a questions night. And a kid asked, if I get a tattoo, will I have it in heaven? And I said, well, the Bible says we're going to have new bodies. So, you know, I said also, so the body's your temple. You know, right. what are you going to do with the temple? But I said, we're going to have new bodies. So what you do, you know, your, your body, this is going to fade away. This is going to be gone. I said, so in, in heaven, you... Whatever you do this body, you won't have that on the new body. I said, I, I'm personally afraid to get a tattoo because I hate needles. I said, my little brother, who was at the time, I think, uh, 12, you know, he, uh, he was adopted. But uh, I said, he had a perfect analogy of why he won't get a tattoo. He says, because when, when you get old, you'll have to stretch your skin to see it. <laughs> <laughs> I said, so I don't want to ever get a tattoo. I said, but I don't think that... It's going to matter in heaven if, you know, your parents have tattoos or things like that and they've given their lives to Christ and they don't do it anymore or anything. I said, I'm not going to get one way or the other on the subject. I said, but I don't think we're going to have tattoos in heaven. Right. Because our body, we have an ethereal body. Yeah. And, and, uh, but I can see having two sons-in-law who have been in youth and children's Mm -hmm. ministries, how something you explain, how it gets blown out of proportion and then somebody decides... I'm going to get rid of you over something as crazy yeah. as an answer that you may, that you're probably not going to have ta- your tattoos are not going to be in heaven because you yeah. have a different body, you know? So, and so, yeah. And that's like, and it's weird because little minutia things like that that have riddled my ministry. They've never been able to attack me personally. They riddle little things like that riddle a lot of ministries and the preachers listening are right now are all nodding their heads mm-hmm. that it's it's so off now sometimes let's be honest sometimes a, a preacher goes off the deep end mm-hmm. he he makes i don't call it mistakes he makes a choice yeah and that choice is sin mm-hmm. and he needs to step down or be removed that happens but it's yeah. usually things like this that yeah. you know you didn't put my child's uh, graduation notice in the bulletin this week. Yeah. Well, it's two weeks away. We were waiting. No, no, it should have been in this week. Yeah. And then they hate you for the rest of your ministry mm-hmm. over something that has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, it hurt. You know. Uh, sure. Because they left the church and some other people who actually had been founding members of the church kind of got caught up in it. And other people who were newer to the church but had uh, kind of been more established, the kids were part of our youth group, got caught up in it, and people left the church over this. And I remember, uh, his name was Bob, Bob Mink, he looked at me and said, you know, I'm going to tell you, you can't let these things affect you. But they do. Yeah. And it hurts every time that this is ministry. Yeah. Well, the youth group grew. It was great. I mean, we were at 100 kids. In a 900-member church. You know, typically, from what I understand about ratios, it's typically 10% of your church is the youth group. And so we were over that. Right. And uh, Bob was retiring. And a new uh, associate minister was brought in who was going to replace him. And just things kept feeling off. I can't explain it other than that. It just, I wasn't supposed to be there anymore, and I knew it. Right. I was supposed to move on. My wife and I were living in an apartment. And in the back of my mind was always, we should get an apartment because I don't want to buy a house. Because if I buy a house, then the ministry that I'm going to have here, um, I'm going to have to sell the house before I can leave. I always knew I was supposed to leave California. 
And one day, me and this new associate minister were sitting to meet in my office. And I look at him. And I just couldn't tell you what it was. It was almost like that peace of God moment. Right. When I, I said, God, I'll, I'm content. So I'm not supposed to be here anymore. Just in the middle of the meeting, I just stopped the meeting. I said, I'm not supposed to be here anymore. He looked at me and said, that makes sense. And I called my wife, who was a teacher in Colton, California at the time. Yeah. I said, sweetheart, I, I just resigned my position. And I know, I said, I'm going to stay probably next extra couple months just so the seniors graduate and the middle schoolers come up. And then I said, uh, the only thing I know is our ministry is not going to be in California anymore. I just knew we were supposed to leave. I, I don't know if that makes sense. And all she said was, the scariest words I think a wife could tell a husband when he just drops the big news on her. Okay. <laughs> That's all she said. Quiet a little bit longer. We'll talk about this when we get home. And what was wonderful about it was that she never said, can you go ask him for the job back? Right. She just knew. And I don't know if it was because of the house incident. When we said, if we let go of the house, it'll happen. She just knew that God was calling me and she was going to go. We didn't know where we were going. It was like two months. Our parents begged us. And I, I'm going to tell you, if you're planning on leaving the ministry, I'm going to say this to uh, the young bucks out there. Don't do what we did. If you're if your your parents are nearby, we took them to a Chili's. We decided to pick a public place. And we told <laughs> both sets at the same time yeah. at Chili's. So they won't shut, there won't be a scene. <laughs> and at this time, there was two grandchildren there, and both of the dads had what uh, my dad had retired when he found out. I mean, it wasn't when he found out, but the night he he retired, he found out he was going to be a grandfather for the first time. And he got to watch my son and help him out when I was doing my interning and when I was the youth minister. And my other father-in-law, they swapped. They would just take the kids. And it was almost like even though there was a crowd around us and excitement and, and it was a noisy restaurant, the air got sucked out of the room. And to this day, you know, <laughs> you should have said it in a different way. And mm -hmm. I don't know, good, bad, and different. I just knew at that point, it, we and, and they did. They all tried to talk us out of it. You don't leave a job in this economy. And I I remember saying, this isn't a job. It's a life. It's, it's a life. I said, if, if yeah. uh, at the time I, we had relatives in the military, I said, if you know they were to get transferred, would you tell them the same thing? I said, this isn't my marching orders. I said, the only thing I know is we're not supposed to be in California anymore. And so we were looking, and, and it took us several months, you know, and I told you a little bit about this, but I'll explain it. In detail, we went on Ozark's website. We were going on every Ozark website. Bible College, Ozark Bible College, and we Christian on, College. Right? Yeah, we were going on every uh, one of the Brotherhood Bible colleges that we could find to look for jobs. And um, I got turned down on several. We've already filled the position, and I got a call back from a church in South Dakota who thought I was way too Pentecostal for their liking, just merely because I quoted spiritual gifts through First Corinthians twelve thirteen to fourteen. I said, "This is what the Bible says." I said, yeah. I'm not going to go beyond that. I don't want to tell you anything the Bible doesn't say, so I'm not going to give you my opinion. Well, amen to that. Sure. <laughs> and uh, I was told by that church, well, there's an assembly of God looking for a youth minister down the street if that's what you want to do. I said, all right, well, if I'm quoting scripture, I guess it's not the place that I need to be. Right. I didn't say that to them. I was nicer to them about it. Yeah. But that was what's in my head. Well, we kept throughout the whole process ignoring this uh, advertisement on Ozark Christian College's website for a church in Fairfax, Oklahoma. They were offering us $1,500 a month, and we had no assurances beyond that. Um, and it just, I didn't want a youth ministry position anymore. I wanted to either be an associate minister and learn how to uh, lead a church, or I wanted to uh, be a preacher, you know, uh, over a church, or I didn't want to go back to youth ministry. And so finally one night, and it's coming down to crunch time, because we're getting on to graduation, and we've got a, a rent check coming due. And my wife resigned her position because she knew that we were leaving the state. We finally said, okay, Lord. We submitted our application. It was a Friday night at midnight. So I guess it was Saturday morning. I got a call 10 o'clock. 
And the guy interviewed me, and it's almost like he was trying to convince me not to come. Because he said, there's a lot of apathy out here, a lot of drug use. It's on an Indian reservation, and so, you know, just the drug use is rampant. Um, he said, the, there's methamphetamine everywhere. Um, you might not get a good response from the kids, and, and just all that stuff. And it was odd, because the more he tried to convince me not to go, the more excited I got about going. Yeah. And then he asked me, how'd you get this ad, ad by the way? So my wife saw it on Ozark's website. He goes, that's impossible. I said, why? We took it down 60 days ago. It hasn't been up. We stopped looking. We got tired of, of not finding the person we wanted. And sure enough, my wife went back and it wasn't there anymore. So you moved from a town of how big? 199,000. To a town of? About 1,200. 1,200, not 12,000, <laughs> Hundred, and I know where Fairfax, Oklahoma yeah. is, and it is out there. And at the time, they have a grocery store now, but they didn't have a grocery store. They had a Dollar General, and the nearest Walmart was forty-five minutes away. Enid? Uh, no, uh, Ponca City. Ponca City. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So uh, <laughs> um, that taught us a lot. It stretched us out quite a bit. My wife definitely did not want to necessarily go to a small town. As a matter of fact, six months after we got married, we went to Lincoln, Nebraska, which isn't a small town. Right. But it's fairly rural. And we were staying on the outskirts, and I said to my wife, you know, uh, I could see us moving to a place like this. And she said, well, I could see you're crazy. <laughs> well, sure enough, here we are out in the sticks. And, and it really taught us a lot on how to love each other more. We had to learn to slow down. Mm -hmm. And we realized that, you know, every time we we get in an argument, we'd go on a walk. And Walmart was in an adjacent parking lot to the apartment complex we lived in. And so we, and we had all the restaurants and the amenities we could want. Well, now we actually had nothing and we had to confront each other. We had two small children and um, the pressures of full-time ministry as um, a youth minister in a church that uh, was growing. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I'm watching what I say because just there were some issues that sure. occurred with me and, and another individual there, and I don't want to embarrass him or disparage him in any way. Um, but we got to a point where we were arguing and fighting quite a bit. And every time uh, she wouldn't talk to me anymore, I said, let's go to Walmart. Because that's what we used to do. Right. Well, this was a 45-minute drive away, so she had to listen to every word I said. And, uh, again, marital advice, don't ever do that. It doesn't work. <laughs> but uh, during that time, we actually grew closer together. Uh, we lived on the church parsonage. Um, the senior minister, he bought a house in town and, and lived elsewhere. And we really learned a lot. I had to almost unlearned my Bible college education. I was taught to be on staff at a large church. And I'm not disparaging the school. I, I was grateful for the education. But it did not prepare me at all for a small town ministry. Right. And uh, how long were you there at, at Fairfax? 2013 until 2019. So we're there about six years, six, seven. I'm, I'm going to, I hate to do this, but I'm going to move us along a little bit because our time's going to be running, running down pretty quick. But so you wanted to go to a bigger town and you came to Murfreesboro. Yeah. <laughs> Well, actually, from Fairfax, we didn't really, really weren't looking at all. Right. We just kept getting phone calls. And I was putting a resume out. Didn't even care to go to a bigger town. We actually don't want to go to a small town or a bigger town anymore. Right. We love small town. We're hooked. We like the, the pace of life. We love the people. We like that people actually know our kids and know our names and wave to us on the street. Right. Um, I wasn't looking to go anywhere. I got a phone call from, uh, he was at the time an elder here. He's... Uh, a deacon, his name's Ronnie McKinnon, and said, hey, we, we've heard about you. And we'd like you to come and, and try us out. And we just knew we had to be here. That was the only thing I could explain. Our kids said, Dad, this is the church we're supposed to be at. And my wife and I fought about it because her misgivings were, what will the people think when we tell them we're resigning? What will the people, what, what, what about our friendships? What about all these things? Well, that's what wives think about. It is. And, and, and bless them for, for thinking that. And, uh, but the, the 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 hard part is a lot of times when we're in ministry as ministers, we're you know we're thinking this we don't we're not thinking about those relations because that's what that's what yeah. our wives do so often yeah. and they're so good at, 
and it helps us more than what we realize Absolutely. a lot of times early ministry. But you actually did move to a larger town. That's what I was laughing about. Yeah. From 1,200 to... 1,600. 1,600. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, it's Metropolis. Right. <laughs> so you've been you've been here now three years? Yes. As the preacher? Yes. So uh, with, with the about five minutes we have left, okay. <laughs> how's that working out for you as, as some famous... TV guy used to say. Well, it's great. We've got a preacher boy club and, and something I've tried to do at every church that I'm at is start something with getting kids involved with ministry. Mm-hmm. Because one of the biggest things that helped me as a young man, even as a, in my rebellion, I was a servant in the church. And it brought me back home when I ran away. Right. And so um, it's one of the biggest things we're working on now is the preacher boy club. We've got, we had eight boys preach like, three weeks ago. I saw that on on the video. I was just checking yeah. the church, knowing I was coming in for revival, mm-hmm. and I said, "Wow, this guy's a preacher boy guy," yeah. and I like that. We're we're big on that at Rock Solid Ministries. That's my goal. I want to start preachers because we have too many um, hip pastors, as they call themselves. We have right. too many people who want the biggest and best thing. But I want to teach people like what what my philosophy is. The first thing I teach them is what's the gospel. Because a lot of people grow up in the church and don't know what the gospel is. That boy, that's right. Yeah. And I teach them how to read the Bible because you have no business being a preacher if you don't know the Bible. Mm-hmm. And then I teach them how to organize their thoughts well enough to tell the gospel through the scriptures and get that thought out there to, to whatever message God has put on their heart. That's that's great. That's great. And I, I, I know that you could, and, and we don't know what God's plans are, but you could... Just have a whole club of boys just in your own house. What mm-hmm. <laughs> preachers? Two of them are part of the club. Yeah, uh, <laughs> well, and and uh, but God may have plans in different directions mm-hmm. for them. But mm-hmm. uh, we need preachers. We've been saying this a lot on this program. We need preachers. We need preachers to produce, yes. reproduce preachers. We need them bring bring them in and teach them how to preach. Mm-hmm. Teach them what ministry is about. And yeah. all these things you said you had to unlearn what you learned in Bible college. In, in our travels, we hear a lot. I didn't. I wasn't taught this in Bible college. Mm-hmm. I was taught. You said the other day. What would you say you, you, you learned in Bible college that wasn't practical? How to for, stay out of court. Um, how to support the staff. You know how to to be on staff is what I was taught. I wasn't taught how to lead. Right, and and so many people don't realize that the average church in, in America is still like seventy to a hundred people, mm-hmm. and uh, how to be on staff. For a lot of preachers is and how to get along with staff is how, do you get along with yourself because you are the staff yeah yeah well, my wife's a secretary so yeah. i mean i have to get along with her right and, and so many <laughs> churches don't even have a secretary the preacher uh, most many churches i was at in my young ministries uh, i did everything I, I did it all when we used to put out newsletters printed i did that i got that ready of course my kids they help fold them and get them ready mm-hmm. and that's what we did and, and these are things that you don't learn um well, we've got just a minute or two left. Okay. Um, what do you see as your biggest challenge? It doesn't have to be here at the church, but just as a minister or a Christian going forward from here, maybe for any minister, Christian uh, servant uh, in the world today. Sticking with it. Because so many of us are discouraged. I think the average shelf life of a kid out of Bible college in the ministry is, what, three years? Yeah. It used to be. It may be less now. I don't maybe know. less, but... But the big thing is sticking with it, um, finding the right partner in ministry. Um, I tell this to, I actually train preachers at a, at a preaching school. I told them marriages have ruined ministries and ministries have ruined marriages. Yeah. You know, finding the right person that God has as your partner, um, not letting discouragement control your ministry, keeping your eyes fixed and praising God and rejoicing in all circumstances. Right. And... We say this so often in this program, but I'm going to say it again. No matter where you are led in your life, no matter what job, and I'll put that in those little air quotations mm-hmm. that they can't see, you're going to have difficulties. Yes. You're going to have to deal with difficult people. And ministry is no different. It, yeah. It's not it, It's not some wonderful place like some monastery where you're off and nobody. That actually, it's almost just the opposite. Because you've got 24-7, you're in this fishbowl, and... And uh, but it's a wonderful life, mm-hmm. 
being a part of changing lives for eternity. Yes. What what else can you do in this world that yeah. changes lives for whatever else you do? It's going to burn up. It's going to be gone someday. Yeah. But the lives you change in ministry are changed forever. It's worth it. Well, I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. And if this podcast has been an encouragement to you, we encourage you to share it with your friends and co-workers in Christ. And until next time, this is Evangelist Tom Weaver saying goodbye and may God pour down his blessings on you like a Mississippi rain.